good afternoon, guys. How are we doing? Are we all fully registered and bagged and tagged? Not, not yet. No. Okay, cool. Uh, I won't tell, I promise. Um, they weren't open They weren't? All right. All right, you're good. That's all right. My name is uh, Lancelot Chaubert, and this is Kathy, is it? Is it Kathleen Goonan. 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 She has um, nominated for a Nebula Award, New York Times Notable Book of the Year. You won an Arthur C. Clarke as well, didn't you? No, I was a, a, a finalist. Finalist, okay. For The Bones of Time. Okay. It's my second novel. Awesome, there you go. So, so she's been in this a lot longer than I have. Um, I am more on the mixed media side of things. I've done some photo novels and symphonic novellas. Then I've written some short fiction as well. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking about Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, if you watched the movie last night. The intersection of science and literature. We'll do about 15 minutes kind of on the, on the characters and uh, the resurgence of, of that sort of character. And then we'll do about 15 minutes on the underwriting themes and philosophies. And then if she and I push back against each other a little bit, we'll give some room for that. And then about 15 minutes for questions, and we should be done by then. Uh, unless someone has an objection, speak now or forever hold your beasts. Let, let me add one thing. Yes, ma'am. Ted, oh, Ted is riding the train from Seattle, and he said that his train does not get in by now. So, so that's why he isn't here. Wow. Yeah, so travel mercies for, for Ted. But he, couldn't, he couldn't make it in time. Um, all right, well, thanks for coming. I will pass it to Kathy and ask um, when have you noticed in literature, because you're definitely longer steeped in the literature side when have you noticed this Frankenstein character uh, coming up in other people's work? Well it's uh, fairly ubiquitous actually because it's so hard to stay away from the meme of the mad scientist right? Mad scientists are everywhere um, one of the things that happened to me was in uh, the early 2000s, I was invited to speak at Georgia Tech uh, about, um, about Frankenstein, and, <clears throat> and I did. And it was mostly a, a talk about uh, Frankenstein as, uh, as it relates to science and fear of science and how, uh, how we deal with um, the rapid ch technological changes that have been taking place ever since, uh, ever since Mary Shelley's time. And then I was a professor of the practice at Georgia Tech for um, about eight years. I, was, I taught science fiction and creative writing. Uh, but you know that, that was the main scope of what I covered was uh, technological change, its speed, uh, what is our reaction to it in terms of the Frankenstein meme and, and how it shows up in literature and movies and, and our, uh, our common culture. And, and indeed, the, um, the figure of the scientist, even though science is rarely done that way anymore by, by one sole person uh, working to change the world, and in fact... Victor Frankenstein had nothing but good in his heart and mind when he started out on his quest. He wanted to make a perfect 
Superman, really. He wanted to make a, uh, a being who was bigger and younger and, and uh, handsomer and smarter than anyone else. But as usual, something went wrong. <laughs> and uh, so, so I would say that the, uh, the law of unintended, unintended consequences regarding scientific development is, is one of the, the issues that is embedded in, in the idea, the whole idea of Frankenstein. Um, did you want to Yeah, something? well, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm friends with a, with a virtue ethicist. Uh, uh, he's, he's a professor like you. He got, he got into a debate with Larry Page recently uh, where uh, Mr. Page was saying, give us all your data and Google will make you smarter and it'll make you richer uh, and it'll make you more famous. And he said, can Google make me better? Because if it can't make me better, it really doesn't matter how much wealth and power I have. And so it's kind of this question of when you pair extreme technological advancement with ethical foolishness or not considering the kind of unintended consequences of what you're making, uh, even good intention can can kind of go astray, and I think that's kind of the mad scientist uh, motif here. Uh, yeah, and he, and he didn't really much care about what happened to his monster. Yeah. After he didn't turn out the way he wanted him to, and to me, that's that's one of the main cruxes of the novel for myself, and and that uh, you know his abandonment of his own creation. And, and how he fled at every turn from uh, from the monster, and how he uh, the monster had no choice. Well, of course he might have had choice, but I guess he was created such that he didn't have any choice but to kill those nearest dearest to Frankenstein in order to to get his attention. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting. Um, I was looking through, I'm sure many of you have read uh, Dance Macabre by Stephen King. Um, it's, it's a master's class, uh, if, if, you, if for some reason you haven't. It's a master's class or a doctoral thesis on the horror genre. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he plays it off in his proletariat kind of way, like, ah, oh, this is, I don't really know that much, but, like, it's, you know, it's thick and, and expansive. Um, covers a lot of subjects, but he, he talks about the idea of a thing without a name. Um, and, and just the idea of, of not only the mad scientist, but this monster has become mythopoetic and generative in, in our culture. It's, 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 it is a myth now. Uh, he just had a list of films, you know, Frankenstein uh, and the young Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, like we said earlier, The Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Revenge of the Frankenstein, uh, Blackenstein, which I think you could argue has an influence on David Lee's Blackula, the name of his pig in the porcine canticles. Uh, Frankenstein 1980, I was a teenage Frankenstein. The Monsters, even uh, Frankenberry cereal. I don't know if you guys uh, ever ate any of that or fed that to your kids, but the Frankenstein marshmallows. Uh, you know, so it's just, it's just this deep cultural undercurrent. Um, so there's something in the American psyche, I think, that really wrestles through this. What do you think that is that, that comes up often um, for us that, that has just permeated our culture? Well, because uh, the United States uh, was such a center for filmmaking, I'm not sure if it's just in the United States. You know, I think it's universal <clears throat> to all humans. And, of course, Mary Shelley was British. And uh, so I think that one of the things that 
we're, we're thinking about when it comes to science and uh, huge changes that might come about. Let's, uh, let's go back and uh, at the time that Mary Shelley was writing, um, there were a lot of things happening. And she actually, uh, when she and, she and uh, Percy went to uh, Germany, soon, a- soon after they met, and they went on this epic, <laughs> unhealthy journey, as, uh, as all of their journeys were, uh, <laughs> and they, they actually went to a castle where there was a scientist. And, and uh, uh, she, you know, she was very conversant. She was, of course, much more conversant than, than Percy, I think, about scientific matters because she had had the run of her father's bookstore her entire life, and she knew very well who her mother was and 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 her you know her father, both very famous intellectuals. So she had kind of a legacy to live up to, and she was mm. extremely well educated. So uh, you know because of her background, she was able to look into the currents of the things that were happening at that time in science in Europe. And, and she had the ability to say, um, what, what if this goes on? What might happen? And she, she came up with this amazing and marvelous character, uh, and suite of characters that have been so fecund for Western civilization, really, uh, that, it, that it's, it's hard to see the limits of it. But she... she uh, I, I would say that the um, uh, you know you can just take anything like CRISPR for example. Well, you you know you you can get a kit, you know maybe not right now, but a kit and do. Um, I, I think you probably can get a kit and do fairly simple things at home. Uh, regarding ge- genetic manipulation and see what happens. Uh, you know, that, that's pretty cool. Um, but then what happens if it's, uh, you know, what happens if these, th- when these creatures reproduce? Well, of course, humans have been doing this for millennia with plants and animals. And <clears throat> but the, the consequences have been slow coming, but nevertheless, they're kind of the fulcrums of history, how, how we've dealt with, with agriculture and, and, um, and animals and, and every, everything that comes of uh, being more organized into, into cities and countries. And so, you know, that's, should these things be licensed? Who licenses them and how? Uh, should these kinds of interesting things be um, Regulated in some way. I mean, these these are the questions that we're always asking, and it's it also seems as if nuclear weapons, which were uh, a big surprise, except to, to very few people in the world, when it was used on Hiroshima. Um, you know that that was you know in in the mid century that was just huge, of course, and we had to. I, I see many of you in the room who, like me, had to hide under their desks. And we oh, lived yeah. right outside of Washington, D.C., and every week uh, we had to bring a can of something to put in our bomb shelter at school, which was the gym. 
<laughs> so this you must is, have had a strong basketball team, right? Yeah, no, this is this is science. This is science unleashed upon everybody with nobody knowing what to do about it, or or even still what to do about it and how to handle it. And you know, it's the same thing in, in public health in in anything you want you want to think of because this is a technological world and you can pull Frankenstein back into that in any number of ways you know, seven days to Sunday uh, and, and, and not stop. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, you know, there's this, <sighs> there's this line in uh, a work by Chesterton where he says, uh, he's, it, it's one of his early compilations called The Defendant, and he starts defending things that don't need defending at all, like skeletons, rash vows, things like this. And he's got, <laughs> he's got a piece in there uh, where... It's just the intro to the book, and he says, you know, people say that this knife is bad because it's dull or it's rusty. And he says, well, a bad knife isn't a bad knife. A bad knife is a good knife that's not so good as the knife you prefer. Because a, a, a knife, even the most rusted, blunt knife in the Stone Ages, is a thunderclap. And his point is, uh, I mean, you know, there, there's this huge movement that happens when there's a technological advance in, in a culture. Now, on a, something with a broad application, a knife can be used surgically, like a, like a scalpel. It can also be used you know, to, to hurt someone uh, or, or murder someone. So on a broad application device like that, there might not be as, as many um, consequences, but the, the application of a gun is significantly much narrower. Or of an atom bomb, I mean, you, you pretty much have decimate large populations or harness the power of the sun like those are there aren't a ton of options with that kind of raw power um, you, you've written a lot about nanobots right nanotechnology Nanotech, yeah. uh, have you encountered some of this mad <laughs> scientist um, motif in, in that in terms of the unintended consequences of it well sure because Drexler's original uh, vision in the engines of creation <clears throat> which was, excuse me, published around 1988, I believe, and was, uh, for those of you who don't know, it it's an MIT dissertation kind of dressed up. Uh, and he, he got his doctorate in nanotechnology, first one. And, and so his vision of nanotechnology was un without limit. You know, you can change things on a molecular atomic level even very quickly and this will be in the hands of everyone and uh, and actually I had written it by that time I had written Queen City Jazz Mississippi Blues and in 2000 I published Crescent City Rhapsody so that was uh, and then I published Light Music so I wrote uh, a nanotech quartet is what I called it so around 2000 I started getting interest from the government, and, and this happens to science fiction writers, and I was invited to give a talk at Crystal City about futuristic weapons. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm very much a pacifist, but that sounds too like I'm not doing anything. So I'm actually virulently in, in a warlike fashion against war. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of my books, like in particular in wartimes, are written from the point of view of how can we 
end this? Mm. You know, how can we change basically human nature? But anyway, so I went to Crystal City and I gave a talk about education because I was a, uh, a Montessori teacher and I had my own school for, for about 13 years. And to me, the, the way that children can learn so easily in the right environment how to read and do, you know, the math operations uh, and, and stuff, it's, it's amazing. Mm. And you have to... Ha- so I, I just gave a talk about how education to me is the most important uh, and potent way of changing us so that we won't have war. And I realize that that's a little bit idealistic, but that's what I think. And um, so, so the government actually wanted to, the, and, the, and I was lived in the DC area, so uh, one day I called the National Science Foundation and said, how about if I come down and give you a talk about one of my books? And they said, Better yet, Fridays is our um, is our stupid science fiction movie day for lunch. So why don't you come down on Friday and you can give a talk instead of the movie? And there I met a uh, Dr. Bainbridge, who was instrumental in developing this nation's uh, policy towards nanotechnology and how it would progress. And they were worried that Prey, the movie Prey, was coming out very soon, and they did not like that. They wanted uh, the uh, the country, which has, you know, I mean, nanotechnology now is, is kind of, it's not the issue it was back then, because they didn't know how it would go or where it would go. But, um, you know, he wanted to have a policy, which was pretty much implemented. They wanted to, to get out to communicate to people that nanotechnology could be a force for good, in, in all aspects of life, you know, education, architecture, um, city planning, public health, anything that you could possibly think of that the government is involved in, that, 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 that it would be using the knowledge that we get from nanotechnology for good. Um, and so lately nanotechnology in the past 10 years, I would say, has become more the province of uh, biotech engineering. Mm. Um, It has been pretty much at this point decided that it's not something that can be easily done like CRISPR. (laughs) In fact, maybe never because of the physical, the the limits of the physical universe. Mm. And so what, what they're calling nanotechnology now is done in clean rooms, and it's very, you know, you, you can't let anything mess up your tiny, tiny little stuff. And they're doing really, really cool things with robotics and very small things. And, it, and at some point it shades into biology, of course, but I think they've kind of divided that. So that's, that's my short history of nanotechnology, at least <laughs> no, in, it's good. in the United States. Mm. Um, but, the, but there was a great fear among the, the, the National Science Foundation that nanotechnology would, maybe could get out of hand as Drexler envisioned and do, do not only good things but uh, do a lot of harmful things. Mm-hmm. And um, not that it would have been developed by just one person like, uh, like Victor Frankenstein, but that it was a possibility of a, a Frankenstein event, you know. You know, it reminds me, there's this short story, and I cannot for the life of me remember the guy who wrote it, but 
um, it's kind of this idea of the, the gray goo uh, where, where a self-replicating nanotechnology starts to take over a physical environment and turns everything into mush. What music? Um, I'm not sure. It was in the best... Uh, it was one of the best sci-fi anthologies. This thing, this thing ended up taking over the moon and turning the entire moon into like this, this star that orbited Earth and contained all of like Earth's kind of like what they're doing with the quartz things they're sending out into space now. That it's like this backup hard drive. But there's there's this dread in the whole story about that. Is this is this going to turn all of Earth into gray sludge, or is this going to you know give us you know all of human history? Um, in one memory, and there's and it, that tension is there. Um, you know, I I like that tension because it's it's present in the original uh, Frankenstein story, um, because you are simultaneously attracted to and repulsed by this monster. You, you're falling in love with it, and you're also terif- terribly afraid of it. Um, and and you know, unlike unlike the films, the the monster is completely articulate. Um, you know, we have this kind of like slouched, you know, in fact, they, I, um, I think it was, I had it written down, Universal Pictures, I think it was, actually copyrighted the makeup, you know, the slouch forehead and stuff, so you can't actually use that makeup. But that, the, in the story, the monster is actually essentially fully functioning human consciousness that gets, you know, learns language in a day off of Paradise Lost and what have you. And um, And I think... You know, that that fear of losing this innocent birth of advancement in human human um, progress, and yet also of what it could do to us, is contained in multiple places. It's contained in King Kong uh, really well, uh, where Kong is you know hanging off the tower and he's swatting at these planes. We actually cry for the monster. Um, this is the film I watched the most when I was a kid, so I have kind of a uh, deep, deep place for that one. Uh, but it's, it's captured in Ex Machina, too. That, that recent sci-fi film actually is a Frankenstein film um, because you have this moment where you're not sure if you want this thing to live or die um, or how it responds to its creator. The Hulk is a blend of Frankenstein and, and um, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, but the moment uh, in the films where the Hulk um, comes up to Black Widow and, is, and she is attracted to him and he is terrified for what will happen to their relationship, even to her, if they continue, that is that emotion of both attracted to and repulsed of this thing. Um, have you come across that anymore of, of like technologies where we're simultaneously afraid of and in love with them and maybe even... Uh, a debate in science fiction literature? Well, I think pretty much we have a love-hate relationship with a lot of technology. Take smartphones, for instance. Yesterday, something popped up on my screen, and and now it's telling me how much time I've spent doing everything with my phone. And this annoys me. (laughs) I want to get rid of it. (laughs) I have to figure out how to get rid of it. I didn't ask for it. And uh, so this, just having smartphones has totally changed society and has changed literature and movies because you can't, you know, you have to really think hard to figure out a reason why somebody can't use their cell phone uh, to ask for help or whatever. Uh, And 
Um, so, so I think that that's been one of the most and, and kind of unrecognized because it's been so so stealthy and so uh, and yet in that suddenly everybody has one and they're using it for everything and you can't get along without it and people who decide not to use a smartphone or you know they're not luddites they don't want to destroy everybody else's but it's like well i'm just going to stick with my flip phone it does what i want and and so then okay they don't have the experience that the rest of us do in terms of ease of access of information uh just to take that for an ex- one example, but then again, they don't have to worry that somebody's going to hack their phone and steal all their information or, or perhaps steal their bank account information or all kinds of things that are, uh, you know, possible. So we kind of use them at our, at our own risk, uh, and, and we seem to trust them. I know in the early days of... Uh, uh, the navigation programs. I think someone died in Australia because they followed their navigation program and, and got themselves into a desert. Uh, yeah. So uh, you'll encounter that too in the city. Um, I'm, I live in New York now, and there's. Um, it's funny because you, you have a lot of people that have grown up with navigation systems, and now, you know, I. I was a Boy Scout, so I grew up in southern Illinois, like, town of 8,000, all right? So, like, orienteering is kind of important to us, like, knowing, like, being able to get yourself unlost from a woods by yourself is, like, this huge coming of age for, you know, a 10-year-old. But you encounter a lot of people that they don't even know which way to turn the map app that is telling them where to go. And so they get lost using the navigation technology because they don't know the thought that's predicated on it. Um, and I think th- it could be that um, you know a lot of these advances, without entering in with like basic assumptions of what this is good for, what this is bad for, um, can end us up at, at very least in some silly situations. You know, you see some of these, <laughs> some of my wife's friends running into walls before they look up because they don't. You know, they're not orienting it properly to the to the street. Um, I mean, it's not as bad as a desert. But <laughs> well, um, somebody will have to help me with this if you can. But the woman who wrote Proust and the Squid, I think her first name is Andrea. Anyway, it's about reading, uh, and she's she's written a book. Uh, her latest book is about our brains, our brains on technology. Mm. You know how she's done research about. Uh, well, when I was a kid, too much television watching was supposed to be bad, and you shouldn't sit too close to the television because that's really going to hurt your eyes. And maybe that's what happened to me because uh, I, I, I couldn't. I was myopic from a young age, but uh, but, but the uh, I mean, you know, the, the, every day you can see in the paper something like, well, babies are using I, iPads you know, or toddlers or whatever, and, and, you know, we have to limit their time and things like that. So, because reading is an artificial activity, it's not something that comes naturally to humans. It can come easily to humans, but it can be hard for other other people to master reading. Um, but, 
So what might all this particular way of concentrating or not concentrating be doing to, to our brains um, as, 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 the, as the children are getting older? Um, perhaps everything will be fine. Perhaps they'll be very different than we are since they've been doing it for a very young age when your neurology, your, um, your neurologic pathways and your neuroplasticity are are powerful, powerful, powerful learning tools. So, you know, what is happening in the brain? Uh, what kind of pathways are getting wired into your brain when all your information comes through a screen that you touch um, and you can manipulate by touch? I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the consequences will be. Nobody does. You know, it's not going to be all good and, or all bad, but it's different. It's new and different, and we don't know. You know, if, if we were Mary Shelley and we wanted to make something spectacular, if we wanted to win a bet or something, <laughs> uh, we could, uh, you know, postulate how, how it's, you know, changing brains and, and make it really scary as writers or as it, it might not be very dramatic to a lot of people, but <laughs> that's the that's the skill of the writer to make it so. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's uh, um, the poet Samuel Taylor Coolidge in his Eights to Reflection. He starts it off saying, uh, "If you are not a thinking man, to what measure are you a man at all? Or if you're not a thinking woman, to what measure are you a woman at all?" And and it's you know these these virtue ethicists that have been hired by these tech companies, they've also been hired as people to train reflection. Um, because in the information age, you know, we, we are information scavengers. That's like what we do as a race. One of the most important things we can do is actually digest the information we have and, like, and process through it. Um, you know, there's a story that came out about, oh, like five or six years ago in time about how the NSA had hired ESPN to teach them how to, how to digest the amount of footage that they were bringing in through cell phones. Um, and I think it's, that's, you know, that's, what writers are good at is stepping back and saying, how can we read deeper of less? Uh, how can we not just scan through things, but actually think through and process through the, the deep consequences, the deep uh, meaning of what's before us? Um, and I think that that's applicable to technology, and I think it's a crossover. Um, I mean, technically, writing is a technology, and, you know, and, and um, you know, story is the craft. But in this case... Um, you know, how, how can we take what's in front of us and, and process through it uh, to get through to where it might be in, in several years? Um, we are at 4.30 right now. I think we'll go a little bit longer than we'll, we'll uh, kick to you guys for questions. Um, One of the things that I wanted to talk about was you touched on it, but more of the humanity of the monster. One of the, yeah. That's what gets lost in the films that I've tried to watch. I mean, they're fun in their way, whatever, but um, that's what, I mean, when you read the novel, uh, I mean, it's just a whole different picture of the monster. Uh, and he's just a brilliant person. And he's he's just very human. Mary Shelley was very child-oriented. She, she lost an, uh, several of her babies when they were infants. Um, and 
she she was just really she saw Frankenstein the monster as someone who was a child he'd just been created but although he had a, a man's body um, somewhat incomplete and ugly but um, he learned as a child does through the environment and uh, my my heart would really go out to him when he's eavesdropping on, on people to see how families how families function because he'd never been in a family and he wanted to know what is this that everybody's doing he was like a social scientist he had to figure out 